Uh, good evening, everybody. You're all very welcome. Uh, my name is Conor Geerty. I'm a professor of human rights law here at LSE, and it's uh, my uh, tremendous pleasure to be able to welcome to LSE the 11th Archbishop of Westminster, Archbishop Vincent Nichols. Uh, Archbishop Vincent was born in Liverpool and was, uh, went to the Venerable English College in Rome, I think during uh, around the time of Vatican II yeah. in the 60s, yeah. and then uh, became a priest uh, for the Archdiocese of Liverpool in uh, the late 60s, December 1969. I don't know whether there was any particular Beatles number released that day or whether you have any uh, close uh, identification with any particular number that mirrors your career, but that was late 60s. And uh, Father Vincent's been very involved in education. He has his MA from the University of Manchester and a Master's in Education from Loyola and has uh, been a long-time chair of the Catholic Education Service. So he's very deeply involved in educational issues. He's been a bishop uh, since 1992, uh, first of all in North London and thereafter in Birmingham, and since uh, 2009 in succession to uh, Cardinal Murphy O'Connor and before that, of course, Cardinal Hume, the uh, Catholic Archbishop of Westminster. So uh, it's a tremendous thing that he's come here to LSE to speak to us. He's, uh, Father Vince, coming as part of the Forum on Religion, about which I will say some words right at the end, which is uh, an engagement that LSE has in faith and the public sphere. Uh, we've had uh, speak in this forum uh, Archbishop Rome Williams, Tariq Ramadan, and other many distinguished speakers. So uh, we're delighted to have Father Vincent following in that line, and also in a way so soon after the uh, remarkable visit of uh, the Pope to Britain, making good on the Catholic engagement in public affairs, which uh, His Holiness anticipated and did so much to promote. So uh, the idea is that the Archbishop will speak for maybe up to 50 minutes, and then we'll have an opportunity for questions and answers from the floor. And the whole evening, we think, will end, give or take a few minutes, between a quarter to eight and about ten to eight. So can I ask you all, please, to extend a warm welcome to Archbishop Vincent Nichols. Professor Geertie, thank you very much for your words of welcome, and good evening everybody. Thank you for this invitation to deliver this lecture. I'm glad to do so, and I look forward to our conversations a little later. The title of this lecture, Good Life in Hard Times, raises questions about our well-being, even about our happiness. So we can ask, what is it that makes us happy? And yet, looking back now on a decade of almost continuous economic growth, we know that human contentment did not rise as expected with GDP. So we do well to ask why, even if we might quickly admit here at least that it doesn't make much sense for government to promote, to promote happiness as a policy aim. Equally important, and yet too often ignored, are profound moral questions that have come to the fore in the diagnosis of the financial crisis and its aftermath. And so as we think through the role and the limitations of the markets 
in serving society and in promoting the common good. Now all these issues and more in their different ways raise questions about values and the moral and spiritual resources on which we might draw to help us answer the question about what is the good life. I believe that religious faith and in particular the tradition of Catholic social teaching has something very important to contribute at various levels to the personal level of course but also in relation to our understanding of the role of the state of the market and of wider civil society and later in this lecture I want to offer some thoughts drawn from that tradition but I want to start somewhere else there is in Britain today a wariness, a latent concern about religion that it is, succinctly put, a problem a problem to be contained not a gift to be shared so I would wish to try and dispel some myths about the place of religion and religious freedom I want to argue this that promoting religious freedom increases our capacity to do good in the public square within due limits. Why the caveat within due limits? Because I do not wish to defend everything done in the name of religion any more than I would expect a humanist to defend everything done in the name of humanity. But I do want to take head on four arguments against promoting religious freedom. They are these. First, that it is inherently divisive. Secondly, that religious freedom encourages fundamentalist extremism. And thirdly, that religion pollutes and deludes. And that fourthly, religion and religious freedom undermines respect for fundamental human rights. Then, I want to put three positive arguments. One, the richer understanding of what it is to be fully human that religious and religious freedom expresses. Secondly, the powerful, positive contribution which religion can make to building a stronger civil society. And then finally, how a rich understanding of religious freedom can help to secure a viable pluralism in a secular society. And then that will lead me on to say something about the particular contribution from the tradition of Catholic social teaching, which is available to all and for free, in both good times and bad. So that's what I want to do with you this evening. So first, what are these four arguments against the promotion of religious freedom? The first is this, the claim that religion is inherently divisive and does more harm than good. This location itself is resonant with this point. There were Catholic martyrs of the Reformation put to death here on Lincoln's Inn Fields. During the Gordon Riots, the Sardinian chapel, more or less on this site, was looted and wrecked. In contrast, before coming to London, as you heard, I was for eight years the Archbishop of Birmingham, which as a city has, I think, the largest presence together of Muslims, Sikhs and Hindus in this country. As religious leaders, we met regularly and worked together. And that experience led to a real growth in dialogue and respect. I could illustrate it with one example. That came when there was widespread worldwide controversy and some violence 
in response to remarks made by Pope Benedict in a speech he gave at Regensburg University, in which he quoted about Islam and the use of violence. It happened that the Central Mosque in Birmingham was at that moment holding a coordinating meeting of the 167 mosques of the Birmingham area. The Central Mosque immediately brokered an agreement that no mosque within Birmingham would comment on the controversy because they wanted to respect the Pope's freedom to say what he wanted to say. He was of faith taking forward a proper agenda in provocative circumstances. Then, when the Pope came to this country last September, one of the meetings he held was with leaders of faith. Please note, not just religious leaders, but people in leadership roles in different walks of life in our society who are people of faith, people of different faiths. And it was the first such meeting to take place in a papal visit anywhere in the world. And it powerfully reinforced the message that people of faith share a common commitment to the service of society arising from their faith with tolerance and respect. Now, of course, it, can be, it is true that religion has been and can be a source of conflict and division, as indeed can atheism and any other belief system, even liberal relativism. But all the great faiths share in their teachings in one form or another the golden rule, do unto others as you would be done by. And they share not only a deep respect for the other person, but they also extend that respect to the environment, to the creation, as a work of a divine creator. Of course, we can all point to failings. When Gandhi was asked what he thought of the Christian civilization, he replied, I think it would be a very good idea. <laughs> but Britain today, our society, is a remarkable test case. We are living in a crucible, in a global experiment of religious coexistence. And in this country, we have the opportunity, through the greater acceptance of the positive role of religion, to exemplify and perhaps export a new model of tolerant religious pluralism. Now, the second argument against religious freedom is linked to the question of its so-called divisiveness. And it's this, that promoting religious freedom encourages fundamental extremism and encourages extremists to use religion as their cloak. The fear of divisiveness is powerfully reinforced by images of religious extremism. So this is an understandable fear. We simply have to admit that in some stages of our own history and in parts of the world today, religion is associated with intolerance and violence, often practiced by religious adherents in direct violation of their own avowed religious precepts. It would be naive and disingenuous to deny this. But having said that, it is a mistake to think that religion of itself entails fundamentalism. There is a view that any religious faith involves a kind of lobotomy and that anyone who really takes their faith seriously is to that degree 
immune to appeals to reasoned argument. Now this is wholly false. Faith and reason are not incompatible. Indeed, they need each other. And that point was eloquently made by Pope Benedict in the speech he gave in Westminster Hall in last September. This is what he said. <coughs> the corrective role of religion vis-a-vis -vis reason is not always welcomed, partly because distorted forms of religion, such as sectarianism and fundamentalism, can be seen to create serious social problems themselves. And in their turn, these distortions of religion arise when insufficient attention is given to the purifying and structuring role of reason within religion. This is a two-way process. Without the corrective supplied by religion, though, reason, too, can fall prey to distortions, as, it is, as when it is manipulated by ideology or applied in a partial way that fails to take full account of the dignity of the human person. Such misuse of reason, after all, was what gave rise to the slave trade in the first place and to many other social evils, not least the totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century. This is why I would suggest that the world of reason and the world of faith, the world of secular rationality and the world of religious belief need one another and should not be afraid to enter into profound and ongoing dialogue for the good of civilization. That's the end of the papal quote. The third argument against religion and religious freedom is that religion pollutes the rational mind. It should not be imposed on others. Therefore, promoting religious freedom is a bit like advocating smoking in public. The argument then goes, if you cannot manage to give it up, if you cannot manage to give up your religion, then please do it in private. <laughs> now, I'm often struck by how in polemics about religion, people of faith are always described as seeking to impose their views, whereas their secularist opponents are much more reasonably only seeking to propose theirs. This sleight of hand barely conceals a deep prejudice about what religion really is about. The truth is that to be human is to be a meaning-seeking creature. Indeed, the motto of this institution, the LSE, emphasizes this very point. Rerum conoscere causas, to know the causes of things. Even the simplest reading of this motto must recognize that it goes beyond the material and efficient causes. It has to include formal and final causes as well. What makes me who I am and what is the purpose of my existence? We are indeed meaning-seeking creatures. We find ourselves having to give an account, if only to ourselves, of what really matters to us in life and what the purpose of life truly is. Whether we have 
a religious faith or not, we are each of us still a missionary for something. In fact, it is how we behave, far more than what we say, which conveys what it is we value most. None of us can leave our deepest beliefs or our modes of behavior at home when we go to work, nor should we be asked to. These beliefs shape and inform who we are and how we think. So promoting religious freedom, allowing space for faith in the public square is simply recognizing this human reality, a reality common to every purpose. But there's more to this argument than asking for the tolerance of something which cannot be suppressed. In fact, the recognition and appreciation of the moral and spiritual motivation which inspires so much charitable, voluntary and educational endeavor serves only to enhance and enrich society as a whole. But at the same time, these beliefs and endeavors must be subject to proper public scrutiny, the due limits that I mentioned earlier. Any real imposition of religion would be a theocracy, which is indeed incompatible with religious freedom. But the mature and enlightened secular square should echo to the sound of many faiths in dialogue with one another and with secular protagonists to the enrichment of all. The secular public square should not be faith-blind, but faith-sensitive, welcoming and testing reasoned arguments. Religious voices should not expect special privilege because they are religious, but nor should they be excluded on those grounds either. And whilst public authorities will rightly seek to justify their actions by reference to reasons which all can accept, in contributing to public debate, religious and faith voices should be free to speak from their traditions as well as to adduce public reasons in their support. Encouraging their willing and full participation enriches democracy and at the same time facilitates the necessary dialogue between the world of secular rationality and the world of faith of which the Pope spoke. So far then, I have considered three charges against promoting religious freedom that it is inherently divisive, that it promotes extremism, and that it pollutes the public square. The fourth argument against religious freedom I want to consider is that promoting the freedom of religions risks undermining respect for fundamental human rights. Today, this argument is often put in relation to rights such as gay rights or the rights of women or the concerns about theocracy I mentioned earlier. This charge has risen in recent years in disputes about the activities of religious charities and organizations where respective rights are in apparent conflict. Now, as many of you will know, Article 9 of the European Declaration of Human Rights is a qualified right. Paragraph 2 reads like this. Freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs shall be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society in the interest of public safety, 
for the protection of public order, health or morals, or for the protection of the rights and freedom of others. What matters is that there is a common acceptance of a framework for adjudication of such disputes, whether through Parliament or the courts. But what about the question of upholding the fundamental rights of all? For example, given the recent stories about the persecution of homosexual people in Africa, for instance, I recognize this is much more than an academic question. Yet can I illustrate some easy misunderstandings? In the teaching of the church about these questions, there is this statement. It is deplorable that homosexual persons have been and are the object of violent malice in speech or in action. Such treatment deserves condemnation from the church's pastors wherever it occurs. It reveals a kind of disregard for others which endangers the most fundamental principles of a healthy society. The intrinsic dignity of each person must always be respected in word, in action and in law. That's the end of that quote of church teaching. Here's my comment. The human dignity that we all share as human beings is not defined by nor derived from our gender or sexual orientation. The dignity we share is by virtue of our common humanity. And this shared humanity is what lies at the heart both of religious freedom and of respect for fundamental rights. In fact, far from being a threat to fundamental human rights, the rich appreciation of human dignity which religious freedom elicits and sustains is a source of moral and spiritual energy in defense and upholding of those human rights. So having put and commented on four arguments against promoting religious freedom, I now want to turn the argument round and focus on three positive arguments why religious freedom increases our capacity to do good in the public forum. First and foremost is the argument concerning the richer understanding of what it is to be fully human that religious freedom elicits. Secondly, the positive contributions which religion can make to building a stronger civil society. And thirdly, how a rich understanding of religious freedom can help secure a viable pluralism in our society. So the first argument, that religious freedom expresses a richer understanding of what it is to be fully human. At the heart of political debate at this time, is just this question of what it is to be human. Many contemporary commentators have rightly criticized the model which goes by the term homo economicus. That is the idea that we are all self-centered utility maximizers, seeking the satisfaction of our preferences, however defined. As a model of what describes the richness of our lives and interactions, this may seem a significantly deficient description. 
yet it might be uncomfortably closer to us as an indicator of how we actually behave. The facts or statistics are clear. There is a lack of correlation above a certain point between income and human happiness or contentment. Nevertheless, there remains a persuasive assumption within our culture that we are little more than separate individuals who happen to share the same space, who ultimately owe nothing to society and have no necessary bonds with others, as it has been called the unencumbered self. The only thing we have in common is the market, or as it was quaintly put, Tesco ergo sum. <laughs> this leaves us with the challenging question of how much more creatively can we actually link the individual with society. Now I believe that attending to and promoting religious freedom, understood in its richest sense, invites us to inhabit a subversive and a different story. This story begins with the acceptance that we do not come into life as separate individuals, but as fundamentally relational. It acknowledges that to be fully human is constituted by our deepening relationships with others, and I would add with God. Indeed, the very word religion reminds us they are, that we are reverently bound to another and therefore owe the duty of justice to that other. And the virtue of justice includes religion and applies, it, and applies us and applies to our being bound to God. It's not just that we're born into relationships of dependence or even that without relationships we could not grow or develop. It is that only our relationships of love, friendship, the enlargement of our social ties, that's where we can find fulfillment. So to be fully human is to be more than an individual. It is to be a person in relationship, self-transcendent, creative, and emergent. These are the very bonds that enable us to understand and fulfill our freedom to be ourselves. It is homo religiosus who is truly happy, truly human, because this person has recognized the deepest reality of his or her nature. This is the understanding of person that the project of human rights actually seeks to promote today. An individual certainly, but one whose personhood depends on connections with others. Such a person flourishes in his or her rationality, not living alone in a castle, but mixing freely in society, a human being composed never of oneself alone, but always through connections with others as well. So what religious freedom, understood in its broader sense of valuing freedom of thought, religion and belief, what it reinforces is an understanding of human dignity as a capacity to transcend, to go beyond one's own materiality and to seek truth. This brings with it a much richer vision of what it is to be human, a theme I will come back to shortly in dis discussing, <clears throat> discussing 
Catholic social teaching. That's my first argument in favour of religious freedom, and I'll just have a drink of water. I want now to turn to the second argument in favour of promoting religious freedom. This is that religion actually and demonstrably contributes to social goods, to neighbourliness, volunteering and philanthropy. The recent magisterial empirical study of the impact of religion in the USA by Robert Putnam called American Grace has some fascinating insights about this. His conclusions do not entirely support my thesis, for he assembles evidence that religious Americans are somewhat less tolerant of dissent than other secular Americans. But on the question of the civic virtues of generosity, altruism, volunteering, and good neighborliness, there is, as he puts it, a very clear and remarkable religious edge. This is not simply that religious people are more likely to give to or volunteer for religious causes. Rather, it is, factually, that they are consistently more generous in relation to giving and volunteering for secular causes as well. So then he asks why. And through studies of people who have either gained or lost a religious faith, he finds evidence to support the idea that there is a causal link. But the really interesting thing is that the link does not appear to be with religious belief in itself. Rather, the link is with regular church attendance. Friends in general have an impact on civic involvement. But he says this, friends at church, that is, religiously focused social networks, are an entirely different matter. Having close friends at church Discussing religion frequently with your family and friends and taking part in small groups at church are extremely powerful predicators of the entire range of generosity, good late neighborliness and civic engagement. And then he goes on to note this surprising finding. Devout people who sit alone in the pews are not much more neighborly than people who don't go to church at all. The statistics suggest that even an atheist who happened to become involved in the social life of the congregation, perhaps through a spouse, is much more likely to volunteer than the most fervent believer who prays alone. It is religious belonging that matters for good neighborliness, not religious believing. Now, I'm not a sociologist, and it would be fascinating to know whether similar results hold true in our much less overtly religious society. There is certainly much evidence of the contribution made by faith communities and churches to social engagement. And intuitively, there is a rationale for the effects Putnam describes as explanatory factors, which could well apply here too. He found, for instance, that religiously engaged people are more likely to be engaged in civic life beyond their religious circles. And he added this comment, we suspect that religiously based ties are morally freighted in a way that most secular ties are not. So that the pleas for good work 
seem more appropriate and weightier than comparable requests from a co-worker or from someone you know at the gym. In reflecting on this, I could not help but recall the various powerful contributions in this country made by the churches and faith communities, for example, to the Jubilee Deck campaign in the run-up to the millennium, or to the Make Poverty History campaign, to give just two examples. <coughs> How essential is religious contribution to the long-term development and renewal of civil society? For advocates of the so-called secularization thesis, the fact that religion shows no signs of disappearing has now combined with a new appreciation of the human inspiration that religion and faith bring, as well as, as a wellspring of moral and spiritual resources. This is well expressed in a now oft-quoted statement, a conclusion of the great proponent of Enlightenment secularism, Jürgen Habermas, who speaks about the motivational weakness of secular liberal societies. Indeed, he was quoted by Gordon Brown in a recent speech in Lambeth Palace, and I use the same quotation myself, taken from Habermas' work, An Awareness of What is Missing, Faith and Reason in a Post-Secular Age. And I quote, Among the modern societies, only those that are able to introduce into the secular domain the essential contents of their religious traditions, which point beyond the merely human realm, will also be able to rescue the substance of the human. It follows, I think, that the religious contribution to the renewal of civil society is perhaps more significant than we might like to think. Although it's now tangled up with political argument about expenditure cuts, how we achieve this renewal is a good moral question at the heart of the idea of the big society. And Catholic social teaching has something worthwhile to say about that too. Before turning to that teaching, I want to present my third and last argument in favour of promoting religious freedom. This is how a rich understanding of religious freedom can help secure a viable pluralism in a secular society. It is striking that the European Court of Human Rights has emphasised in its judgments that freedom of religion goes beyond safeguarding the individual conscience. In a leading case, the court said this, it, freedom of religion, is also a precious asset for atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and the unconcerned. The pluralism indissociable from a democratic society, which has been dearly won over the centuries, depends on it. If we reflect for the court, this pluralism is, and I quote, built on the genuine recognition of and respect for diversity and the dynamics of cultural traditions, ethnic and cultural identities, religious beliefs, artistic, literary and social economic ideas and concepts. Now it might seem at first sight that what the court is advocating is simply a neutral space in which each can express what they believe and therefore that religious freedom is underpinned by a kind of relativism. But this is far from the case. What in fact is being pointed to 
is that the human dignity of each and every person is the foundation of the right to religious freedom. And that at the same time, respect for the human dignity of others places constraints on how we must exercise our own religious freedoms. If we look at the recent debates about identity and multiculturalism, if we think about the fears evoked by religious extremism, what those fears often amount to is that if we give free rein to these impulses, then the rights of others may be put at risk. But in fact, what guarantees the freedom of all, and which at its best religious freedom itself promotes and defends, is the fundamental respect for human dignity. If we reflect on the extraordinary scenes played out over the last few weeks in the countries of the Middle East, we can see this. In Tunisia, the slogan was, Dignity, Bread and Freedom. I was struck by this account from an Egyptian journalist, Narawa Najem, of how it was that the crowds in Egypt suddenly decided to risk being shot and refused to be intimidated. She wrote this, Why did the people not fear death? No one knows. It was not only religion. It was not only poverty. It was not only despair. Perhaps the answer is human dignity. No force, however tyrannical, is able to deprive human beings of this. In our society today, there is an ease about identity and culture, and the extent to which there is a need for assimilation and integration of minority communities. What focusing on human dignity does is to shift the perspective away from all our differences, the fact that we have multiple identities in terms of our ethnic origin, our faith, our language, our place of birth, and so on, and instead concentrate our attention on the unique value each person has simply in virtue of our common humanity. The problem, however, is that I believe a growing, and I believe a growing one, is unless we have the resources and the language to return constantly to this perspective, we end up easily colluding in the exclusion or the denying of the rights of a particular group of people. So we need to recover and hold on to a richer understanding of what human dignity means, what it means to be a person, and what it implies for the way we organize society. So this brings me to the final part of what I want to say. So far in this lecture, I've sought to defend the idea that promoting religious freedom increases our capacity to do good in the public forum within due limits. I've argued this largely from a Catholic perspective, which has a rich understanding of the diverse contributions which those of different faiths make in a pluralist secular society such as our own. Now I want to offer you some of the perspectives that come particularly from the Catholic tradition itself. This will then lead me to say something about the implications for state, the market and civil society. If this understanding of human dignity is to be served, if we are indeed to find a good life in hard times. The Christian understanding of human dignity is that we are each created in the image and likeness of God with this innate capacity for self-transcendence. 
We are each in the process of becoming. By our nature, we seek love and truth as something to be attained. The orientation to truth is key. Each person has a God-given capacity to search for the truth and live by it. And the gift of freedom allows us to exercise our conscience in both discerning and living in the truth. Human life, in fact, makes no sense without this desire to seek what is true and to live in freedom. Our identity and dignity as free beings, then, is founded in a relationship to God, and therefore it makes sense to say that we are members of a single human family, each with a unique dignity and a unique calling. We are social beings whose identity is in part constituted by the relationships we have with others. We, none of us, can find our true fulfillment apart from others. It follows from this understanding that there is a clear purpose to society, to the market, and to the state. Each in its own way exists to be at the service of the human person at every level, to allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their fulfillment more easily and more fully. This is a simple but rather radical claim. All political authority has a subsidiary function. It should be at the service of the common good of all. First of all, of the citizens of the state, but then also in a wider perspective, which ultimately includes the whole human family. Now, the idea that there is a clear purpose to society is not obvious. We have become used to a highly impoverished way of thinking which minimizes our connectedness and emphasizes our private lives and leaves society as the space in which we get on with our own thing and allow others to do the same. There is too, perhaps, in this, a legacy of a reaction against totalitarian views which subordinated the good of the person to some supposed ideal of the good of society. What Catholic social teaching insists on is that the flourishing of all, respecting their dignity, is this overall purpose. Each person matters and no one is to be excluded. There is a job to be done and we each have a part to play in it. The language used to describe this purpose, the language of the common good, is used so widely and with such different meanings that its distinctive meaning is not easy to capture. But there is a useful image from mathematics. In a utilitarian calculus, maximizing the common good would be like an additional sum. In Catholic social teaching, it is more like multiplication. You will understand that in a multiplication, if there is a zero, then the total is also and always zero. So too, if in society's efforts of progress, anyone's good is completely excluded, a zero, then the total is also zero, and the true common good cannot be realized. The emphasis on the human dignity of all immediately takes us towards a particular concern then for the weakest members of society, the old, the very young, the disabled, the ill, and to ask how well their needs are being met. 
Catholic social teaching also insists that the commitment to the service of the good of others, the common good, is not something we can outsource to the state to do on our behalf. Cultivating a disposition of care for others then is an integral part of living a good life. So it is clear that the tradition of Catholic social teaching has something to say about the project of revitalizing civil society. The debate opened up by David Cameron under the uneasy title of the big society is indeed a big one, for it invites us to ask what the purpose of society actually is, and that in turn depends on our understanding of what it is to be human. This is an important and necessary debate for society to have, and it is a different debate from the other necessary debate about public expenditure and public expenditure cuts. Catholic social teaching is not a political program, still less a party political one. It sets out a clear moral mandate for the role of the state at the service of the common good, and it offers the principle of subsidiarity as a guide to warn against the arrogations of power to higher levels than is necessary to serve the human dignity of all. What our teaching does, however, is to pose questions. What moral criteria are being used in practice when decisions are being made to reduce public expenditure? What are leaders appealing to in people when they invite social change and transformation? The other area I want to touch on very briefly before closing is the place of the market. Again, there was a pervasive assumption which seemed at once again to be abroad in the financial sector, that the free market mechanism is subject to its own internal logic, which somehow sits outside the moral calculus we want to apply to the rest of society, as if it were a scientific experiment subject to rigid laws. The truth is that we are talking, what we are talking about are human decisions, and human decisions are always taken in a moral space. Good business leaders have always known this and have always sought to articulate a purpose and instill a culture within their organization which places the operation of their firms in private sectors clearly at the service of society. What we saw in the financial crisis was bad business practice, compounded by a culture celebrating profit as an end in itself. Last year, I engaged in fascinating dialogues with some of the leaders in the financial sector in which it was clear that they were seeking a change of culture. And I applaud the leadership some have given, but I also lament that the financial sector seems collectively still to have failed to wake up to the moral responsibility it has, as we all do, to serve society. Until a different culture has taken hold, I cannot see how a real and necessary change can take place. This evening, I have ranged far and wide. It was important, I think, at a time when religious freedom is so often questioned to set out the case. I wanted also to point out areas in which the church, through a social teaching, can contribute to the project in which we all share, of enabling a good life in hard times. But in closing, just two more paragraphs, I want to go a little deeper into what the contribution of the church might be. 
The church's tradition, the church's tradition's commitment to human dignity does not depend on any social, on any political philosophy or contingent social benefit. It derives from its understanding of the event of the incarnation and from the nature of the good itself. The incarnation, God taking human form in Jesus Christ, reveals what it is to be human and the meaning of human life, its potential for corruption, but also its intrinsic nobility, value, and purpose. No matter how deep the corruption of human beings and the society they create, Christianity can never abandon the human project or despair of it, because in Christ, God has definitively and irrevocably chosen to be with us. This is no idealism, romanticism, or utopian optimism. Christianity has a crucified saviour, and that means it can never diminish or avoid the actual evil that human beings create, as well as their potential for it. Yet precisely because of its realism, Christianity is a source of creative hope and energy for the healing of the world. The theologian Bernard Lonergan, speaking of the reality of decline and disruption which marks the energies of pro progress within any society and is a symptom of the alienation from ourselves and our own good, says this, a religion that promotes self-transcendence to the point not merely of justice but of self-sacrificing love will indeed have a redemptive role in human society. And that, in the end, is the true gift revealed and offered by Christ and his church in which I and so many others have such confidence today. Thank you for your attention. Uh, thank you very much, Archbishop, for that wide-ranging and for students and others, always grateful, well-structured talk as well. It seemed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they stayed, they stayed the same throughout, which students at LSE will know is quite rare. Uh, we have you know, a fair bit of time. I'd like to move it fairly briskly. And so uh, we've got, uh, I say optimistically, a couple of people with microphones. We have one microphone. We have a hand with paper to draw attention to, which has already succeeded. I'm going to take two or three in a row, uh, and uh, I'd like you, if you feel able to, to give your name, and if you have an affiliation, it's always useful for us to know. But if you don't, it doesn't matter, and if you feel you can't give your name, that's fine. We'll be a lot of hands up, so I'll take uh, the gentleman with the paper and the, the lady who's two down, and then is there anybody over here? And I'll take this lady, and then I'll come back. So let's take these three first and then go to, Father, uh, to Archbishop Vincent. Thank you very much. Um, my name's Jeremy Rodell. I, I chair the uh, South West London uh, Humanist Group. And I must say, I found myself in agreement with an awful lot of what you said. And I think he, a, a lot of the principles that you, you uh, 
uh, clarified are indeed, I, I would share them completely and so would most humanists, uh, particularly the golden rule, pluralism, uh, you're saying that religious voices should be heard but shouldn't expect privileges uh, and so on. And in particular, the respect for human dignity. The problem I had though as I was listening to you was that there seems to be quite a big gap between those principles and the way the church has behaved in the past and does and behaves today. And perhaps I could just select two of those. Um, one is that uh, religious voices don't expect privilege. Well, where I live, we have schools where if you're a Catholic, you're, you, you can get into it. But if you, you're not a Catholic, your chances are much lower. And as a taxpayer, I'm paying for that school. And that, doesn't, that seems to be an example of religious privilege. Uh, and secondly, in terms of respect for human dignity, um, uh, and I think I, I, I quote this correctly, obviously there are many heretics who ended up as toast who uh, probably didn't feel that their human dignity was being uh, respected. But in your inauguration, I think your predecessor said something, and I think I quote this correctly, um, the inability to believe is the greatest sin. Now. I read that and I was rather surprised because I felt that wasn't respecting my human dignity as somebody who likes to think about ethical issues but doesn't hold a, a belief in the supernatural. Uh, and I wondered if you could cover those right. points. J J Jeremy, thank you very much for that. That was an excellent start to our question and answer. I'm going to come two down to the lady who's looking at you. And although, of course, I know you, you give Michael. your name. <laughs> I'm Victoria. I'm an LSE law student, one of Connor's um, two T's and uh, I'm also a part of the LSE Catholic Society just wanted to say thank you for coming um, on a kind of different kind of similar note I was just going to say I'm from the Diocese of Salford and I personally account to me getting to LSE a lot to my Catholic education um, so I would just like to say that I think the Catholic Church has done a very good job in helping to get like people from me into some state schools and I think some of the impact that like the priests have given also, on a similar kind of note, I think educationally, taking um, people from Salford to places like Lords, I think teaches them so much that you cannot teach in a classroom, um, a lot about like civic society. And then just quickly, a quick question. But be, um, be quick though, because people will think I've planted so, this question before. I haven't, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, um, and just a quick um, question. Um, in terms of big society then, do you think that... Um, in terms of like an equation, how does big society fit in with a welfare state? Is it basically um, less um, welfare state and more big society? That's the question. Thank Great. you. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. And uh, the third, before we go to Archbishop Vincent, the lady here. Oh, hello. Uh, my name is Yvonne Lockhart Smith. Um, I studied here four years ago. Uh, and I'm currently working in a law firm. Um, I terribly enjoy your, your presentation. Uh, I thought it was really great. Uh, so thank you very much for your insights. Um, I wonder uh, if you could just elaborate further on the concept of faith and religion. How would you define those two terms without which it will be slightly difficult to uh, perhaps you know, articulate all of the many thoughts uh, you provide us with tonight, so faith and religion. And uh, just very quickly, um, I wonder how could you uh, reconcile uh, religious freedom on one side um, with claims uh, about human dignity in the light of a court case that you might be well aware of uh, this week uh, in which uh, a Christian couple was banned from um, 
being uh, foster parents because of their views they have about homosexuality. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and Archbishop, I'm going to ask you to be, it's difficult, but fairly succinct, not, not, <laughs> not to you. cut down too. Well, these, uh, <laughs> these are not light questions. They're, they're, not, they're not hugely superficial, but no, I will want okay. to go for another um, round. Take them one at a time. Thank you to the, to the first speaker, the first questioner. Um, I, I do hope we share a great deal because we, I presume, share a commitment to the human cause. And I think one of the most important things for me consistently through my life is, is a great commitment to humanity, to humanism. I would say my humanism is a Christian humanism, but it's a humanism. And it's a humanism illuminated, I believe, by a gift of revelation, which I'll come back to in response to the third question. Um, the schools, well, I mean, part of me to make a very brief response is to say Catholics are taxpayers as well. Um, Catholics pay their taxes full whack to help provide this, the educational system of this country, and then they pay on top as well. They pay 10% of the cost of the schools. But there's a much deeper point, and that is in our understanding, and indeed in the understanding of European law, the first, parent, the first educators are the parents. And it is the state's job to assist the parents in providing an education which recognizes and respects the religious beliefs and expectations of parents. So if we think about schooling from the state downwards, we get it wrong. It's not the state that provides the education. It is the family that provides the education assisted by the state. So if the Catholic community has organized itself and won agreements, stands up to all the testing, provides education of the highest standard and pays for it, then I think that's a very strong position they're in. And there's nothing to stop other people doing the same. The comment that you attributed to Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, I don't remember, and it doesn't sound much like him, but that's not to deny that he did or he didn't say it, because I was probably in a bit of a tiz was that day. <laughs> I would rather refer to Cardinal Newman and to Pope Benedict's uh, praise of Cardinal Newman, who said, this is the Pope said of Newman, he was a man who took modernity seriously. He was a man who accepted the reality of agnosticism, of the difficulty or impossibility of belief. And that was part of the reason why he, the Pope, holds Newman before us as a good example for our work today. So. Uh, I think I'd better leave that there. The second question, big society and the welfare state. I have, in public speech, never used the word, never used the phrase big society in attributing it to myself. I have never praised or criticized the debate about big society directly. What we have, as bishops, talked a great deal about is the project of trying to fashion deeper social responsibility. Now, deeper social responsibility is, as it were, a, a, an imperative at this time, perhaps because of the last 15 years that we've lived through, in which there has been, I think, we all know for all sorts of reasons, and not just political reasons, there has been a dominant attitude in which we say, there's a problem, somebody else better respond to it. And I think the fundamental thrust of what we're being invited to consider is how do we, each of us, 
make a contribution to the common good, to the well-being of society. That's what's important and that's what's interesting. And that's why in this lecture I want to raise the questions that lie behind that invitation. What do we think society is about? What do we think about the common good? What do we think about human, our own human being, our own human personhood, and how we should, because of who we are, not because of what some politician says, because of who we are, be relating and acting responsibly one towards another? And then on the third comment, I think you put your, hand, you put your finger on a very important distinction between faith and religion. Where was the, 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 oh yeah, I'm sorry, those further questions were addressed to you, further comments. Religion, as I said in the talk, is part of the traditional virtue of justice. So religion is to do with acknowledging duty. So religion is to do with acknowledging duty to a supreme being, who I might sense, whose existence I might accept. Faith is a response to a revealed religion. So faith is a response to the revelation of God, the disclosing of truth by God in the person of Jesus, for me. So the catechism, the Catholic catechism definition of faith is that I believe whatever God has revealed. And that's different from religion. Religion is the structured response of duty towards the creator. Faith is the response of a revelation of God made in love. And the Good. final question about the, the recent case. Oh, the recent case. Well, yes, don't believe what you read in the papers. That's what I can say. I can't resist this. I can't resist. This is the judge in the case, because I thought this question might come up. <laughs> now, I'll just read one paragraph of his summing up and his, his uh, judgment. And Mr. Diamond, that he refers to, was the barrister who brought the case to the court. Please remember that the local council hasn't decided, hasn't decided whether this couple can adopt or not, or foster or not. It was a case that was provoked. And this is the judge. It's hard to know where to start with this travesty of the reality. All we can do is to state with all the powers at our command that the views that Mr. Diamond seeks to impute to others have no part in the thinking either of the defendant or the court. We are simply not here concerned with the grant or denial of state benefits to the claimants. No one is asserting that Christians, or for that matter Jews or Muslims, are not fit and proper persons to foster or adopt. No one is contending for a blanket ban. No one is seeking to delegitimize Christianity or any other faith or belief. No one is forcing to seek Christians or adherents of other faiths into the closet. No one is asserting that the claimants are bigots. No one is seeking to give Christian, Jews or Muslims or indeed people of any other faith a second class status. On the contrary, it is fundamental to the law, to our polity and to our way of life that everyone is equal, equal before the law, equal as a human being, endowed with reason, and entitled to dignity and respect. Did you read that in the Daily Telegraph? Uh, right, yes. Uh, this gentleman has had his hand up, and I'll take this gentleman behind him. I'll try and get for him. He's a man with two hands up qualified, I think. But, but that has to be only one question. Uh, and no use of neighbor's hands in future, please. 
and I'll take the lady that's got her hand up there. So those are my three, and they need to, or four. They need to be incredibly brisk. You, sir, will be directly after this. Uh, yes, uh, Catholic doctrine. Uh, and you're going to remind us of who you are uh, and yes, be fairly brisk, yes, sir. Uh, David Glue, I'm not um, part of LSE. Um, Catholic doctrine is human life begins at, begins at conception, and therefore abortion is murder. This doctrine is a major cause of Africa's population explosion, which causes Africa huge economic problems. But this theory about conception was first discussed in the 19th century and has no support from the Bible or any learned, learned authority in early Christianity. My question is, why doesn't the Catholic Church give the sacrament of Christian burial to all stillbirths, miscarriages, aborted fetuses, and even to dead fetuses so small that they can only be seen by a microscope? Thank you, David, for that. And it's quite a precise question, I think. And we've got this gentleman uh, who is two rows back, and then the chap with a number of hands, and then the lady up there. Yes. Thank you very much, Archbishop. I'm uh, David Echeverry, banker. Come to that. Uh, and actually, a lot, a lot in terms of banking has been related to uh, short-sightedness and, and just not seeing things coming, which I think is, is one interesting insight and one that is worth discussing. So would you say that the long-sightedness that is needed there comes from the eyes of faith? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, and thank you both, especially for the succinctness, which I hope will be continued by the chap who's got the microphone. All right. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your talk. I thought your comments about and happiness... And you are... My, sorry, my name is Garnet. I'm a student at LSE. Uh, I thought the comments about happiness were very interesting in terms of its potential relation or unrelation to material well-being, especially in light of David Cameron's announcement that the government's going to start trying to, uh, to measure happiness. I was wondering if you could comment on what you think of that effort and if there would be a way... Uh, from a, a Catholic perspective of actually quantifying uh, a, a more, a more, I guess, Catholic notion of, of happiness and relationships. Is that something that we could count and measure and include in a, a happiness metric that the government is looking at doing? Thank you very much. Uh, and the final one in this round is the lady whose hand is now up and is receiving the microphone. Hi, um, my name is Laura and I'm a student at LSE. Um, I've noticed in the past year or so, at least in the States, um, there have been television advertisements promoting Catholicism um, and urging people to come to the church. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on um, this way of, of trying to promote religion and um, what you think about the ethics and effectiveness behind it. Thanks. Thank you. That's a nice one. Uh, we've got four, and uh, over okay. to you, Archbishop. Uh, the first one's about abortion. Um, just two points, very succinctly, if I may. I mean, I think the far greater problem in Africa is child mortality, and the, the, the real problem facing World Health Organizations, which I know the present government is very committed to, is the whole question of maternal health and child mortality. And I think if that could be solved, then I think you would see a difference in the demography uh, in Africa. Mostly people's, the, the size of the families that people have goes down with their affluence. They don't go up with affluence. And I think that's one point. The second point is a more philosophical one. If human life does not begin at conception, when does it begin? Um, the law is extremely unclear. Our social conscience is very unclear. We award damages to unborn children who are damaged in road accidents. We just are very unclear about it. 
And so the, the, the Catholic position is a principled one that the only sure point at which you can say human life begins is at the moment of conception. From that point, it is human life with potential. It's not potential human life. It is human life with the potential to grow to a full human existence. I think the, the second question about long-sightedness and long-sightedness in economics uh, is a very, very key question. And I'm sure that those involved in the banking sector and industry are struggling with this. I know it from various conversations that I've had. I, I don't believe long-sightedness depends on a religious perspective. I think, obviously, self-evidently, a religious perspective, and certainly a faith perspective, enhances a long, the, the ability to take a long-term view because the term view that a, a person of faith is going to take is going to be beyond death as well. So that's going to be a setting, but no more for the way in which they might develop a perspective within uh, a, a business. I had a conversation recently with the chief executive of a very global economy, uh, a global business. And he said, looking at his business as it operates across, I think he said, 60 or 70 different countries, there were two values that he thought were essential to the success of the business. One was the dignity of the person. He said, because unless we treat people with dignity, whether they are our supplier, our customer, our employee, then sooner or later they will turn their back on us. There is no point in squeezing your suppliers out of business in the long term. So in the long term, the dignity of the person, and secondly, the importance of the family. Now, he was not talking from a religious perspective. He was talking from a long-term economic point of view. But I think it was good human sense, which brings us back to the first comment and the commitment to humanism that both a religious, a faith perspective and other people might share. The third question, happiness measured. Well, no, I don't think there is a simple Catholic formula. I think the, the logic of it is clear. What are we made for? That's the question to ask, because happiness is to do with purpose. When I am attaining my purpose, I am very happy. In the short term, Fernando Torres would be delighted if he scored a few goals for Chelsea. <laughs> and, you know, it is his sense of purpose when he's on a football pitch. When he's off the football pitch, he's a very good father. I sat next to his two daughters at the Liverpool-Chelsea game. He is a very good parent. So his happiness then depends on his family. So you have to ask, what is my purpose in life? Because that is directly what happiness is related to. And Thomas Aquinas's teaching was very clear. Human beings are created for happiness. Their happiness, in the end, depends upon how they understand their being, their existence. And if it's understood in relationship with, to God, then that happiness depends ultimately on that relationship to God. And without it, we remain restless, unstill, and deeply dissatisfied, even though we might cover it up with all sorts of other things. And then finally, advertising. It's probably more of an American trait than an English one. <laughs> but you never know. Things that happen there often drift this way too. So we'll hold our... No, I won't hold my breath, but I'll have an open mind. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Archbishop. I have this feeling that if there were going to be some 
ad campaign, you might figure quite prominently <laughs> on the ads, saying in contradiction of Lord Laird, who's a great guru of happiness, join the Catholics and be even happier than the rest. It'd be quite a good, <laughs> be quite a good line, wouldn't it? It's true. It'd it's be quite true. a good line, so I, I wouldn't knock it entirely. Uh, I think, I think what I need to just notice by way of conclusion, because I promised to have you out of here between a quarter to two and ten to, is uh, the work of this forum on religion. And uh, the organiser, Effie Focus, who may be watching on some weird webcam, you never know what's <laughs> going on, can't be here and sends her very best wishes, and is, uh, is uh, I think, possibly even giving birth as we speak. I mean, so she's expecting baby very soon, and I think we should send out our warmth and our best wishes to her because she is the driving force behind this superb forum on religion. If you are interested in the kinds of issues that were talked about today, uh, there is a, uh, a seminar on the 9th of March, Islamic Identities in Majority and Minority Contexts, Past and Present. There's one later on in May, 4th of May, on Human Rights and Human Security. Uh, the forum is, is dealing with really key uh, intellectual issues and it's open to the public and it's easy to find on the LSE website. And I just would uh, suggest to you that you take home not just the uh, moment uh, this evening, but the possibility of a continuing engagement in the forum. Because uh, I think what you will have got from this event, which I have got actually very much from listening to Archbishop Vincent, is how the uh, religious perspective today and the Catholic perspective we heard today engages with really serious issues. And there's a sort of uh, depth to it that is uh, extremely welcomed in an environment by this, uh, like this, even from people who don't think of themselves as religious. And the kind of definition of religion we saw, and faith, is a definition which, as some of us uh, acknowledged, uh, is one that is attractive for the, for the depth that it brings to consideration of contemporary issues. And I think we were very grateful for that. I want to just say that I'm sure that Archbishop Vincent will agree with me, we're very grateful to you as well. It continually staggers me how every single person you completely choose arbitrarily without any organization produces a dazzlingly brilliant question and is always presenting a lovely range of people, students, members of the general public, Catholics, non-Catholics, and you did it again, a fantastic number of questions which covered so much of the relevant ground. So thank you to all of you for uh, contributing to the success, as I think it was, of this event. But thank you uh, mainly, I think, and, and lastly, before we end the evening, to Archbishop Vincent. It is a tricky thing to come into a university environment like this and to engage with an audience that you don't necessarily know and to do it as brilliantly as he has done. I found it a fascinating talk, a challenging talk, uh, and I leave you with this idea that he gave us from Habermas, rescuing the substance of the human. I thought that there was quite a project here with which I think all of us in this room would agree, which is the joint endeavour of making life more meaningful than we are constantly being told it is. And so uh, I'd like you to join with me in acknowledging our gratitude to Archbishop Vincent in the usual way. So thank you very much for coming to the other